Well, we've been in a series on home worship, and we've looked at two different analogies or symbols, and today we're going to be looking at the garden. We started out looking at the altar, talked about the family altar and family worship and how the patriarchs regularly built altars and how we should, evening and morning, uh, build an altar to God. Uh, Last week, we talked about the fortress and how when we come to God in prayer, uh, we are told that we're coming directly into the presence of God. We're coming into the most holy place, and he creates a fortress around us where Satan cannot harass us and tempt us, and how important it is to daily be in that fortress. And we're going to be looking at a third topic today, a third analogy of the garden And this will be our concluding uh, segment on home worship. But I pray and hope that we can continue as God's people to spend time regularly, to spend time regularly on our knees and in Scripture, by ourselves, with our families, because that truly is only where our strength comes from, not from ourselves. So I invite you to just bow your heads where you are, and let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, Thank you that each one of us here are sinners in need of a Savior. Father, we, we, we each desperately need you. We recognize our insufficiencies as, as we look at our hearts and our minds and the regrets and mistakes that we've made, especially in the, the light of the cross. We recognize that we are woefully insufficient without you. And I pray, Father, that as we come to the holy word of God, that you would please enlighten us. I pray that you would expand our minds to understand the message that you have for us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to, and uh, we, very, very interesting, you know, Donnie, can you help me out? Uh, somehow these pictures got mixed up. That's the very, very end. Can you um, start um, at the very end? And I'll just go backwards. Does that make sense? I can uh, flip through that. There we go. Perfect. And I will just uh, go that way. Perfect. No problem at all. All right, let's go ahead to uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, The Lord God planted a what, everyone? A garden. Where? Eastward in where? Eden. My youngest child's name is Eden. Eden means delight or pleasure. And here God created a garden that was a delight for his occupants, for the occupants of this garden. A a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. I know we have a lot of gardeners here at the Hendersonville Church, a lot of individuals with green thumbs, and I think all of us can appreciate the beauty, the serenity, the calmness, the smells, the sights of a garden. Just a couple weeks ago, my family had the privilege of uh, visiting the Biltmore Gardens. How many of you have been to the Biltmore Gardens? I have a few pictures here. And the Fergusons, in fact, Charles and his wife kindly gave us 
some passes to go in and visit the Biltmore Gardens. And what incredible beauty was there. We saw these neatly arranged flowers uh, and all the intricate designs. I think there were some perhaps uh, daffodils and, and maybe some tulips uh, that were coming up as well. Uh, but one of my favorite parts about this garden was the conservatory. How many of you have been there in that big uh, greenhouse atrium conservatory? And as you walk in this beautiful greenhouse building, there's brick uh, walls that come halfway up and then glass that allows a lot of sun to enter into this building, you are immediately struck with these incredible uh, smells wafting into uh, your nose. Just beautiful, beautiful uh, flowers, smells, tropical flowers from all over the place. There's some nice fountains uh, that make a, a wonderful sound. There's nothing like the sound of a waterfall. As you hear that sound uh, uh, of water softly uh, just beating upon itself, uh, it's amazing what that sound creates. Um, and there's my son uh, Levi walking through. And I, I couldn't help but think, and in fact, my kids were the one that brought this to my attention as they're walking through. They're like, Dad, is this what heaven's going to be like? And I'm like, yeah, it, it's going to be even better, children. It's going to be even better. And they were smelling the different flowers and looking at the plants. And there's especially something special to a child, you know, who has to duck under a leaf. And, you know, it looks like maybe a, a tunnel, so to speak. And we got a, a family picture there in front of this garden. Uh, but this particular garden that God planted for Adam and Eve was far more spectacular than anything man can produce. Absolutely beautiful. And we're told something interesting here. Notice this, patriarchs and prophets, that everything that God had made was the perfection of beauty. All of Eden was beautiful. The whole entire thing. Nothing seemed wanting that could contribute to the happiness of the holy pair. They had everything they need. God provides for our needs. Do you believe that, church? Yet, yet, the creator gave them still another token of his love. You know, Adam and Eve, this is all for you. I love you so much. But just to show that I love you even more, just, just to... Just to provide a little more evidence how deep and wide my love for you is, I, I, I'm making a garden for you. Yet the Creator gave them still another token of His love by preparing a garden especially for their home. Beautifully crafted branches. You didn't need a table saw, you didn't need a drill set or screws. This garden was made by God and Adam and Eve lived in this garden. A place where they could spend time with each other, spend time, more importantly, with God. Learning about God, learning who he was, speaking with him, and then him talking to Adam and Eve as well. Notice what the Bible says. We'll continue in verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree, Grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, sometimes we focus just on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the bad tree, the tree that they were supposed to stay away from. But let's do a thought experiment for just a moment. How many trees laden with fruit do you think there was in the Garden of Eden? How many? Thousands, thousands at least. So many trees that were filled with fruit that they could eat from. 
And so if there were a thousand yeses, there was one no. But sometimes we focus on the no and forget the yeses. The Bible says that his promises are a yes and an amen. A thousand trees they could enjoy, that they could pick fruit from, and there was one that God wanted to test their trust and relationship with him. Notice what we're told, that in the garden were trees of every variety, many of them laden with fragrant and delicious fruits. We love fruit trees, don't you? Something special about going to a tree, and there on that tree, an apple or a peach, and picking it off. We planted... uh, in Yucaipa, California, when we were there, seven different fruit trees. We wanted to be biblical, right? And uh, we planted seven of them, planted a, a peach tree, two cherries trees, a, a fig tree, uh, uh, I think a, a plum tree, um, and, and a couple of others. Uh, but, but one of my favorite things was seeing my little children go out to our peach tree when, when the uh, tree was ripe and ready uh, and, and, and just going out and picking that thing off the, uh, off the tree and, and just biting into it and the juice is running down uh, their cheeks. There's something special about fruit trees. And there were so many trees in this garden that God gave them for fruit. There were lovely vines growing upright yet presenting the most graceful appearance with their branches drooping under their load of tempting fruit of the richest and most varied hues. Now, all of these trees that we see and all these green things, we know here in North Carolina, and especially a former Californian, former, (laughs) I know that in order for things to be green, you need sunlight and you need water. You need water, friends, don't you? So look there in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, now a river went out of Eden. Interesting language that we're going to focus on today. A river went out of Eden. In fact, some translations say a river came from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. And you can continue reading for the sake of time. We won't. Verses 11 through 14. But these beautiful uh, uh, rivers that spread out, one of their being the river Euphrates, and it's fascinating that the Bible tells us that the source of those four rivers was in fact Eden. That Eden, it seems like there was a spring, so to speak, the Bible almost implies, coming out and producing these rivers that watered so many things. In fact, one Bible commentary said Eden is portrayed here as a source of life-giving rivers. That is perennial streams. There's no surprise. This is no surprise because its orchard is where the tree of life is located. Eden is a source of life. You've seen a a picture, or even in person, wherever there is water, wherever there's a river, that's where trees are growing, that's where flowers are, that's where life is. Especially in dry, harsh climates. When a river flows through a dry, harsh, harsh climate, there's green all around. Some of you have been to Yakima, Washington. Yakima has some interesting weather patterns. They get a lot of uh, of, of, of sunny days uh, because of the unique location compared to the rest of Washington. They're on one side of the mountains compared to the other. 
but, but if you go to places like Yakima or, or others, you can see it's very dry all around, but there's still a fair amount of water and these rivers coming through that a lot of the farmers will draw from uh, canals in different places. I did a, I did a baptism uh, there in, in Yakima, and a blueberry farmer had this canal that was coming through, watering all of his blueberries. And I had to be careful because it was a fast flowing canal. It was the only baptism where I was afraid that I might lose the candidate uh, as he was going downstream, but we kept our, our footing there. But, but we know that picture where wherever there is a river, there is life. And we see something fascinating in Scripture that the Bible doesn't just start with a river coming from Eden, but it also ends with a river coming from Eden. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Revelation 22. The very end of the Bible, the Bible says, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as mud. Is that what it says, friends? Absolutely not. Clear as what? Crystal. Now, how many of you have ever seen a crystal clear creek before? I spent a year, uh, took a year off of college to be a student missionary in Australia, and I visited the beautiful island country of New Zealand. I was on the, the North Island, and New Zealand has beautiful water and streams. I, I've heard they have some of the, the cleanest water in the world, and I remember specifically going into this wooded forest, and there was these be- beautiful, big, almost redwood trees, and, and these clear, clear streams. I mean, there was not one inch of, of, of muck or, or dust or dirt in them, just these beautiful, clear streams that were deep, and and I remember going to one of them, and, and uh, uh, some friends and I would, would jump in one end and float down the river and then jump in. And, and there's something incredible about a clear stream. And so with that picture in mind, here's this beautiful, pure river that, that John the Revelator sees. It's, it's a water of life. It's clear as crystal. You can see that in this vision. But he notices where this water is coming from. Notice the direction of the water. It proceeds, verse 1 says, from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the what? Healing of the nations. Here is a river coming directly from the life source, from God himself, from the throne room, from the sanctuary of God. And wherever this river goes, it produces life. Here's this tree of life that's coming out of this river proceeding from the throne of God. The roots of the tree of life extend on either side of this river, and as they extend down deep into the soil, drawing from the river of life, it produces fruit that also has life. Fascinating the picture that we see here. The Bible begins with a river and it ends with a river. But is there a river in the middle? We know that God is going to recreate Eden. In fact, in such a way that, notice this, he's going to recreate Eden in such a way that, in fact, the tree of life that was from Eden is going to be and is already in heaven. I find this fascinating statement after the after the entrance of sin, the heavenly husbandman, the heavenly farmer and gardener, God himself, transplanted the tree of life to the paradise above. Can you imagine that transplant process? You know, I have a, a work to do. Will you come down and 
come with me. Let's take this tree. And of course, we know that God probably didn't reach in and take his tractor and pull it out. But, but some of you have seen those transplant processes before. You have to dig all the way under those, those roots and pull that tree out. And, and I've transplanted trees before, and I'm not very good at it. The, the trees that I've transplanted usually die. But God's do not, friends. He perfectly took this tree from the Garden of Eden and took it to heaven. He transplanted it there. Maybe it was just in his thought or mind, and of course not physically, but, but the tree of life from Eden is the same there in heaven above. And it proceeds, verse 1 tells us, from the throne of God and from the Lamb, coming straight out of the heavenly sanctuary. We know that the throne of God is in the most holy place of the sanctuary. We know that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the God's Shekinah glory is in the most holy place. And there where God's throne is, this river of life comes out from that area. Revelation tells us about the heavenly sanctuary that we know well. But, but we see another picture of a river in the middle of the Bible. We have one in Genesis, we have one in Revelation, but there's, there's one in Ezekiel as well, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 47. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel 47. <clears throat> Here, Ezekiel also is in vision, and the Bible says in Ezekiel 47, verse 1, that he brought me back to the door of the temple. There Ezekiel sees a, a vision of the temple and, and he notices there was water flowing from under the threshold of where? The temple facing east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, temple south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate, led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces east and there was water running out on either side. Here Ezekiel sees and envisioned this sanctuary, the, the temple of God, and, and there's this river that's flowing from underneath the temple. The temple, the most holy place, God's presence, just like Eden, just like Eden restored, this river comes from that direction. Because God always produces life. God is the originator of life. And as, as you read this vision that Ezekiel has, you, you find that the deeper that Ezekiel gets, or we should say the farther he gets, the deeper he gets. The river starts out small, but it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And notice the impact of this river. And just look here on the screen. Verse 9 tells us it shall be that every living thing that moves Wherever the river goes will live. This river that Ezekiel sees is, is, is one that brings life. There along the bank of the river were many trees on one side and the other. Verse 12, along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Friends, this is language that we also see in Revelation. A fruit that will not fail. Eternal fruit. Leaves that will not wither. And notice the next part of the verse. You can look there in your Bibles, verse 12, or look there on the screen. It says, They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Same language you see in Revelation. Their leaves were for the healing of the nations. Here are these leaves and this vision that Ezekiel sees and, and, and they're growing off these trees that are coming from this life-giving river. Why does this river bring life? Well, it tells us. 
Because the water flows from where? From the sanctuary. From the sanctuary. We have these three rivers flowing from God's presence in Genesis, Ezekiel, and Revelation. And how does that apply to us today? How can we get into this river today? I want to jump into that life-giving river, friends, and we can do that each and every day. Remember what we talked about last week, that prayer, whether offered in the public assembly or at the family altar or in secret, places man directly in the presence of God. And I want to suggest to you all today, to us today, that when we come before God and we seek him, that we come into our our hiding place, our secret place, when we come into that fortress with God and we get on our knees, that we are going into that river. That as we go into that river, and as the water of, of life flows into us, as we then enter out of the sanctuary, and as we leave the sanctuary, just like Ezekiel's river did, and we go this way, and we go to someone's house, and we, we tell them about Jesus, and say, you know what, Jesus really is the reason why we're here. Jesus can bless your life, and, and this person starts to grow a little bit, and, and they have life. And, and then someone else from the church comes over here, and, and maybe in Dr. Tryon's uh, medical office, he connects with someone, one of his patients, and, and, and the river goes there, and, and that patient begins to grow a little bit. And then maybe, maybe uh, someone else here who works at the, the hospital or, or a mechanic or someone at the school, the people they talk to, maybe you talk to someone at the, the gas station. And as we go out from the sanctuary each and every day, not just this sanctuary, but as we go out from spending that time with God and as we enter into homes, we bring the water of life to other people. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Jesus develops on this theme and it makes it very clear that this river of water of life is, is not just a, a physical river that we can look forward to viewing with our eyes when we get to heaven, but it's a spiritual river, one that we can enter in each and every day. John chapter 7, looking there in 38 and 39, the Bible says, here is Jesus. and I, Actually, we're going to start in verse 37 because it says, at the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, and he doesn't whisper, but what does he do, friends? He cries out, saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, he saw a bunch of thirsty people that needed his love. And he says, come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus wants to come inside of you, and he wants to make you a river to other people. He wants there to be life in your heart. He wants the areas that are dead and stagnant in your heart to come alive. I know, friends, that each of us have come today with different burdens on our hearts and minds. We've come with worries and concerns as we think maybe about our our children or family members or we think about our, our country or the state of the world. So much happening in our world today. I know, friends, that some of us today have dry, dusty parts of our hearts. Parts that maybe we don't want God to see. We've hidden it from some time from God. 
It's been our, our secret sin that we've grabbed onto and say, God, come into, my, yeah, come into my living room. Sit down here on the couch. Well, don't go in that room. Uh, not that one, Lord. Yeah, let, me, let me just close that one. Let's come sit over here, Jesus. And there's areas and pockets and closets in our lives that we do not want God to find out about. It's interesting that as a pastor, sometimes there is a thinking that, well, we don't want the pastor to know, as if I'm gonna do anything. For example, yes, it has happened to me before where I'm at a grocery store, and I see a church member, and they turn the other way. Well, we don't want the pastor to look what's in my cart. Or what, what happens maybe more often is I approach a group of youth, and they're all talking, and Pastor Jeff comes up, hey, and suddenly the conversation dies, right? Ah, oh, pastor's here, you know, let's... Uh, Maybe shape up a little bit. As if I'm going to do anything. I always tell young people, hey, listen, you don't have anything to hide from me. God knows everything you're doing, right? And he does. But we forget, I forget, that the God of the universe sees everything. Can we bring Jesus into every activity that we're doing? And Jesus' desire is for those stagnant areas to have life again. He wants them to die and then have his water of life enter into the soil and bring life again. I know some of us, maybe it's been a long time since we've actively witnessed, since we've maybe given someone a piece of literature or, or, or we shared maybe the message of Jesus with someone else or given a Bible study. Jesus wants to take that stagnant air in your life and, and bring life to it. He wants out of your heart to flow rivers of living water. But notice, friends, verse 39. But this Jesus spoke concerning whom? The Spirit. Whom whose believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Friends, I believe that we can ask daily, and that we need to ask daily for the Holy Spirit. In fact, we look elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah 44, verse 3 says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants. What are those floods? What are those rivers? That's God's Holy Spirit. Because just as water can fill every nook and cranny and go wherever it would like, the Holy Spirit can fill the whole world, friends. He can fill any part of your heart. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, very clearly points to Christ. When we're talking about this living water, we're not just specifically talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. Time and time again, we're familiar with this. In the book of John, uh, Jesus says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me. He, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. He, the Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will testify of me. What I love about the Godhead is they are constantly pointing the attention to the other. Because in that beautiful circle of love, there is no obligation to be on the top. But it's a position of service. And as A.W. Spaulding, one of our Adventist pioneers once said, there are no positions of honor, only of service. Notice else what we're told here, Desire of Ages, page 187, the divine grace, which he alone can impart, is as living water, purifying, refreshing, and invigorating the soul. 
Elsewhere we're told, Isaiah 12, 3, therefore with joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. I believe, friends, that God is desiring us every single morning to wake up before family worship and to go down to the well with our bucket and say, God, I need some water today. And when we do that, when we come to Jesus with an open heart on a daily basis and say, God, here is my bucket. I, it, needs, it needs some patches. Look, at there's some holes in it. Remember what happened yesterday? And God says, before he starts pouring the water, he says, that's okay, let me give you a new bucket. Because God's not in the business of restoration. He's in the business of replacing. Hear me out, friends. God does not run a, a, a second-hand uh, motor shop where you go in and repair your motor. He gives you a new one. If you come to God with your leaky bucket, he says, let me give you a new one. But he's not gonna give you a new one unless you ask, friends. Desire of Ages, page 187, gives us good news that our Redeemer is an inexhaustible fountain. We could think, well, Lord, I came to you yesterday. God, I came to you seven times, six times last week. Do you have enough water for me? And the good news is we can drink and drink again and ever find a fresh supply. It'll never run out, friends. That's why Isaiah 51 says, or 55 says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy my wine and milk. Come buy that living water without money and without price. The good news is that it is free, friends. You do not have to buy it. In some places, water is expensive. As a former Californian, I know that water is expensive. We're excited about our new home. Escrow closes on April 12th, church family. Thank you for your prayers. And this new home, we have gonna have some neighbors that live out in that direction. There's some other Adventist uh, church members here from Hendersonville, but there, there's a beautiful creek, the Hungry River that flows through. And I'm thankful that my kids can play in that for free, uh, that uh, they can go down to that river. We can go to the river of life on a daily basis without money and without price. So why then, friends? If we can go freely, if, if Revelation tells us that we can go to the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts, and, and 22 verse 17, God invites us, come, come, come take. Then why so often do we neglect it, friends? Why do I neglect I'm talking to myself here. Why do I forget so frequently of this free, life-giving fountain. I believe, friends, the devil is actively at work in the church today, actively at work. He knows that in order to produce a Laodicean people who say they have no need, who say everything is good, but instead are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and in order to produce that, he has to blind their eyes to their need for Jesus. I'm okay. I go to church on a regular basis. I show up at church. I sit in the pews and, 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 and I take my kids to Sabbath school and, and my children attend a Seventh-day Adventist school. That will give them the water of life. Friends, we need so much more than that. I need more than that. I'm talking to my family. How, how often do we forget? We need to, friends, make coming to the altar of God as an individual, as a family, highest priority in these last days. That is how we will have strength. Because if we don't, friends, 
we're going to have leaky buckets. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How many times have I come to God with my leaky bucket? I don't ask him to replace it. I just pop in and out of his presence, and he pours a little water in, and it leaks right out. That's happened to me, friends. But the good news is that we don't have to let that happen. The good news is that Jesus gives us hope, that he says, bring me your leaky bucket and your broken cistern that can hold no water. Let me give you a new one. And Jesus wants to do that each and every day. Turn with me back to Genesis 2.15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. With all of this in our minds, we come to our scripture reading. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. God gave Adam a garden, a, a, a place of delight and pleasure, a garden that we can go to every day. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and I talk with him and he tells me I am his own. We can come to that garden every day and Adam did. He walked and talked with his God. He walked and talked freely with God. God would come and visit Adam and Eve and they would long for those long walks in the garden together. Which is why God gives Adam these words in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what are those two words? I hear some different answers. What are those two words? What does your version say? To tend it, to keep it, maybe to guard it. Those two words in Hebrew, to tend and keep, are interesting words. They're the words avad and shamar, tend and to keep or to guard. These two Hebrew words uh, are interesting words. First time that they're used here in scripture, that first word, avad, means to work or to labor, to serve. So he tells Adam, work in the garden, serve in the garden, keep the garden, make sure that, 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 that its upkeep is, is, is dealt with on a day-to-day basis. Pull out the weeds, make sure that you're getting uh, adequate you know, water sources to each of these fruits. Make sure that you're training these vines. Protect it or work in it. And then the second word has to do with protect. Shamar means to keep or to guard, to preserve. Now we all know, as those that have seen gardens, that if you step out of your garden after you plant it, and I'm gonna come back in a couple months. I'm gonna come back in about three months from my garden and see what my garden has produced. Oh, I can't wait, children. Let's go back and woo, we planted squash and tomatoes and, and we come back in a few months without ever having shamard or avad in our garden and what happens to our garden? It's overgrown. It, it, it's, it's torn up by animals. We haven't put a fence around it. I've, I've heard that, that there's wild animals like deer that get into gardens here in North Carolina. Is that true, friends? I know in Washington State, my brother-in-law loves gardening. He's an incredible tomato gardener, takes seeds every year from his tomatoes and saves them and puts them out and sprouts them and just has an incredible tomato harvest. And he's built, he lives there in, in uh, Battleground, Washington area, and he's put this, this large fence around, and it's not just the side of the fence, but the top too, because he's had animals climb up over that thing. There's a certain work that we have to do to shamar, to guard our garden, and to avat, to, to serve our gardens, to work in them. We can't just expect, friends, 
that when we come with the conclusion, maybe we walk out of the place, I need to spend more time with God, that it's gonna be easy, friends. It's gonna be hard. We each have a sinful nature. And I have found in my life that, that learning to sit in Christ's presence and enjoy it takes work. It does. It takes practice. It takes exercise. We are constantly fighting that human nature. And what's fascinating is that these two words that God uses to tell Adam about his garden are also sanctuary words. The other places that you find these two words are in the sanctuary. Numbers 3.8, they shall attend to the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting and the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. Those are those two words, shamar and avad. They're sanctuary words. We find in Numbers 18, 7, therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar behind the veil and you shall serve. I'll give you priesthood as a gift for service but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Same two words. I don't think it's a coincidence, friends, that God specifically gave Adam two Hebrew words that were later used in the sanctuary because he knew that to protect that garden, that Eden, that, that time with him, there would be some need to spend time with him. And if only, if only we would shamar and avod our gardens with everything we have. I believe, friends, I believe that Satan would be able to access our fortress a whole lot less. And I know, friends, I, I believe with all my heart that we need to come to Jesus, that he's the one that does the work. But we have to admit, it takes some practice to come to Jesus on a daily basis. It takes discipline. It takes me taking some things in my heart and life and saying, you know what? That's a distraction right now. That's an idol. The definition of an idol is anything that abates love for God, Mrs. White says. Anything that lessens love for God. What lessens love for God in your life? For a lot of us, it's media friends. We spend more time in front of our TVs than we do in front of Jesus. We spend more time on Facebook than we do with our faces in God's book. We, we spend more time on our phones than we do with Jesus. And I believe, friends, and I'm the first one to say that I've been there, friends. I'm not speaking from a place of judgment. I recognize and realize that Satan is actively out for each one of us. And I believe that God is asking us to make a specific effort to shamar to avad our gardens with him. And there's a lot of ways to do that, friends. You could, for example, have some accountability. Maybe ask a friend or, 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 or someone in your life. Maybe Fletcher Academy students. Ask your roommate and say, hey, would you help me to wake up in the morning? I want to spend time with God. Can you wake me up? Sure, I'll do that. Maybe ask your, your, your parents or, or maybe ask uh, you know, one of your friends or, or your spouse or, or someone. Maybe have someone call you. Hey, can you wake me up? Set, put it in your calendar. Say, I'm gonna try this for, for seven days. I'm gonna wake up every day and I'm gonna spend some time with Jesus. And those that are already doing this practice, commit more time. I'm gonna wake up earlier and spend time with God. There's a lot of ways that we can, I believe, shamar and, and guard or, or tend and, and keep our gardens. But one of the ways that God has shown me and I invite you to turn with me. This is our closing verse, Isaiah 50, verse 4. Closing verse. One of the ways that God has shown me, and I know others here too, this is not the only way. In me presenting this method does not mean that you have to do this. This is the only way to spend time with God. 
But I have found, friends, that Jesus knows my schedule better than myself. He knows how much sleep I need better than I do. He knows what appointments I have. He knows how much preparation I need to get ready for those appointments. He knows my schedule better than anyone else. So if Jesus knows my schedule better than anyone else, why don't I ask him to wake me up? Ask him to get me up in the morning and to spend time with him. I remember in in college hearing about this and reading this verse and having someone present on it. And over the last several years since then, there's been times where I've gone in and out of this practice. But I have found verse four, friends, to be very true. This is a a messianic prophecy speaking uh, eventually about Jesus, the suffering servant. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Friends, I have found that every single time I ask the God of the universe to wake me up in the morning, he does. There has not been one time that God has not woke me up. There's been a lot of times where he's woken me up and I'm too lazy to get out of bed. That's happened. There's been a lot of times where he, he's woken me up and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, Lord, oh, do I have to right now? And, and I've gone back to sleep. But God has never failed to wake me up, friends. And I believe with all of my heart that if you ask him to wake you up, he will wake you up. Time and time again, I've seen this, friends. When I was pastoring at the Fallbrook Church, and I would do Bible studies with young people, and I would invite them, I, just try it. You don't have to do it every night. Just try it one night. See what happens. Okay, I'll try it, Pastor Jeff. And every single time, the next Bible study, well, did you try it? Yes, yes. I asked God, I read this first before I went to bed, and I asked God to wake me up the next morning, and I woke up before I normally would. Because God is more interested in meeting with you than you are with him. He cares about you that much. In the state of Washington, I was there at my friend's church. We were doing a prophecy seminar, and there was a a brand new member. He'd only been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian for about a year. He had come to a basketball gym night that the church had had, and someone had invited him from that over to their house. They started studying the Bible together. He eventually started worshiping with this new church plant. Brand new Christian. He loved God. He was excited about it, learning all the time. And we sat down at this seminar, and we were talking about a lot of different things. We talked about prayer and different things, and, and eventually, me and this, this gentleman, just in the sanctuary one day, we're, we're talking, and we were talking about spending time with God, and we, and we looked at Isaiah 50, verse four, and how God will wake him up, and he's like, I'm gonna try that, I'm gonna try that. And it was in the middle of the week that we were in the sanctuary for this series, and, and so he tried it Friday night. He worked during the week, and you know, he didn't wanna try any time else, and, and so he tried it Friday night. And he came back the next day. And you should have seen the enthusiasm on this young man's face because for the first time in his life, he had a direct answered prayer. The first time that he had ever directly prayed for something and God had in front of his face answered, he said, I asked God to wake me up and I woke up way earlier, a couple hours earlier than I normally do. Normally wake up at seven or eight o'clock, rush to church and, and I was up early and And he had never spent a couple of hours with Jesus before. And he loved it. He said, I'm gonna do this every Friday night. 
Just two weeks ago, my wife told me something that as a father means the world to me. We get up and have worship as a family and family worship. And later on, usually we do it after breakfast. But my son Judah is the early bird in the family. He's the one that usually gets up a little earlier than the rest. Moving from California to North Carolina has thrown my children off. Uh, they're still kind of used to West Coast time and the time change, but they'll eventually get used to it. But here Judah, one morning, had woken up much earlier than, than normal, about 45 minutes to an hour more than, than normal. And I didn't think much of it. It's possible he's done that before. But he came out, and I was uh, either sleeping or I was in another room, uh, not exactly sure, but my wife told me that he came out and said, Mom, I asked Jesus to wake me up last night, and he woke me up. And he was so excited. He was so excited because he had heard in family worship, we had been going around talking about different things that God had done for us. And we had talked about answered prayers, and, and one of my son Levi's favorite stories, when we were here, uh, Levi got pink eye, and there was a family that gave him some pink eye medicine. And he, was, he thought that was a, you know, that's a miracle, God. God provided that medicine. We didn't have to go to the store. That's right, buddy. And Judah later told Nikel, he said, you know what? I felt like Judah had an answer to prayer, but I didn't. But now I do because Jesus woke me up. Isn't that beautiful, friends? And I believe that God wants to spend time. He wants a daily divine appointment with him every single day. He's waiting for us. He's longing for us. He's sitting on that big white couch on the stage and, and saying, are you gonna come today? And I'm the first to say that sometime I've rushed in and out of his prayer. Hey, God, nice to meet you, and I've gone on. And that doesn't mean that God can't bless you. That doesn't mean that you can't keep on praying throughout the week. We, we shouldn't feel guilty, friends, to the point of, oh, God doesn't love me. He, of course not. But hear what I'm saying, friends, that I believe that Jesus loves to spend time with you. He cares about you so much. I encourage you, friends, to try this method. I encourage you to, to just ask God to, to wake you up. See what happens. You don't have to try it all, the, all, do it every night or all the time. Maybe try it on a Friday night. Maybe, maybe see what happens. I asked some students at, at Fletcher to try that, and, and they came back with reports of God waking them up. I've heard stories of a friend of mine named Scott. He actually lives here in the area in college, he and I were talking about this, and, and he asked God to wake him up the next morning, and he was a deep sleeper, and literally, his phone rang at like 4.30 in the morning, and it never rings, and he got up and answered it, and no one's on the line. True story. <laughs> Many times, because God knows that I struggle getting out of bed. Many times, God will wake me up by one of our cats, Right now, it's a, it's a blessing to be in a basement apartment where our bed is there in the living room and our cats are out there. Many times, the cat meows or moves, that gets me up. Or many times, a child cries out and I go in, are you okay? And they're just sleeping. God will use whatever method you need to wake you up, but he cares about you, friends. Maybe you're disciplined and you, and you just get up early every morning. Praise God for that. But I believe that Jesus wants to give us well-watered gardens. Will you come to the garden with him today. Father in heaven, the joy that we have when we tarry in your presence is like no other joy. I pray that you would teach us that joy. I pray that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim. 
I pray that spiritual things, that prayer and Bible study would become of more interest than anything this world can provide. I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds. Show us how beautiful your character truly is. And may we make decided, intentional efforts this week to spend time in the garden with you. Thank you for waking us morning by morning. And we pray these things in the precious name and blood of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen.